This will be our uh, our final session, and uh, we're going to continue on now and look at something uh, called we call setting the mind, which is really about walking in the spirit. And uh, we want to again show um, in a very practical way, but also really underlying principle of what it means to now walk and trust with Jesus. So let's look at first at why is it important to set your mind. What did we just learn before the break? What did we just learn is happening in the mind? There's a war going on. There's a battle taking place within the mind where this entity or this power or principle of sin is waging war. So between the ears is the battlefield. And if I don't properly set or guard my mind, then I'm going to be in a whole lot of trouble. In 2 Corinthians 2.11, Paul warns us, see to it that that, uh, no advantage be taken of us by Satan, for we're not ignorant of his schemes. We're not ignorant of his thoughts. We know what's happening and taking place. And then finally, in 2 Corinthians 10.3-5, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. It's not about self-will and dedication and hard work on your part. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We're destroying speculations and every lofty thing that rises up or raised up against the knowledge of God. And we're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Because not all thoughts are yours. And so we need to understand that, discern that, take it to Jesus and find out where is it coming from. So that's why it's important to set the mind. So let's again go back to where we left off in Romans. We're talking about this law, the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free, has overcome and released me from the power of the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. See, what is the underlying principle of all the laws of God? Remember when they talked to Jesus And they said, you know, Jesus, give us the greatest commandment. They thought, this is perfect. What a great setup. Because we've trapped them. You know, if he says, you know, the murder, then we'll just say he's soft on adultery. If he says adultery, then we'll say he's soft on lying. If he says lying, then we'll say he's soft on um, idolatry. So they just figured, you know, whatever he comes up with, we'll just attack the other nine. And so they asked him that. And do you remember what he said? He said to them, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. So the whole essence, the whole character, the whole aspect of the law is asking us to do what? To love. To love God with everything you've got and love your neighbor as you love yourself. Look what Paul says in Romans 13. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who uh, loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there's any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Love is now fulfilling what we want to do. So in here, in Romans 8, where Paul says, for what the law could not do. The law can tell me to love, but it can't make me love. 
It can't give me the power and ability to love, no more than me giving you that script about all the twists and turns to do that gold medal dive can make you dive. Having the knowledge isn't enough. For what the law couldn't do. Why? Because there's something wrong with the law? No, weak as it was through the flesh. The problem was you and I. So God did it. Sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. He overcame sin in the flesh. Why? So that the requirement of the law, which is to love, love God, love others, might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So the desire, when Paul says, I joyfully concur with the law of God, I desire to love. I want to love God. I want to love other people. That's what I want to see happen. That happens as Jesus does it through us, as we walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So what's the next natural question? How do I walk after the Spirit? So what do you suppose Paul's going to talk about next? Do you think he's going to have a little dissertation now on the end times? Or, you know, spiritual gifts or church politics and order and structure? What do you think he's going to talk about? Walking after the Spirit. That's exactly it. So verses 5 and 6 then, that's the background, that's the context of it. It's all about walking after the Spirit. And so these are the two verses that we're going to look at for the most part of this session. For those who are according to the flesh, meaning those that are walking according to the flesh, they set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according or walking after the Spirit, well, they set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For the mindset in the flesh is death, but the mindset set on the Spirit is life and peace. So he's got two... Uh, parallel thoughts here. One about walking after the Spirit, the other about walking after the flesh. And these, he's running back and forth with these two. So what we're going to do is we're just going to separate out all the words that refer to the flesh on one side. For those that are according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh, for the mindset in the flesh is death. And then all the white words are all the words about the Spirit, but those who are according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit, and the mindset of the Spirit is life and peace. So you can see there's these two contrasting ways of living. You set your mind in the flesh, you walk after the flesh, the result is death. Now, is that death referring to spiritual separation from God? No. If it were, then every time you and I walk after the flesh, we're doomed. We're now separated from God, we need Jesus to die again and be saved again. And that's not going to happen. So it's not talking about spiritual separation from God. And I say that because how he compares it to is really about life and peace. See, life and peace, I think, is a factor primarily of the soul, but even of the body as well. See, think about how you feel after you sin, after you're walking after the flesh. You feel tired, exhausted, anxious, despairing maybe, maybe depressed, all sorts of things. You begin to feel this heavy burden, that's death. But when you're walking by the Spirit, you're feeling life, you're feeling energy, you're feeling peace, you're feeling joy, you're feeling patient. You may be passionate and angry at times, but it's not driving and dominating you. And that's life and peace. Does that make sense? So it's really primarily a function of the soul and the body, I think he's referring to. It's because the life, the Spirit, is coming through 
into those two areas. Does that make sense? So I think it's page 41A of your syllabus. You'll see this chart. Is that the right page? Good deal. So we have the mindset. And the mind can be set on two things. It could be either a spiritual or a carnal or fleshly mindset. Now some other words to describe these two, two areas. One would be eternal. The other is temporal or temporary. One is heavenly. The other is earthly. Then there are those things that are unseen versus the things that are seen. So in that those two groups, where would my sweater fall? Is it carnal or is it spiritual? Do you not like my shirt? Is there something wrong with it? I mean, it's not evil. It's dark, but not evil. So, But is it carnal? Yeah. It's temporary. One of these days, I'm going to find it in the rag bag. It's of this earth, and it is seen. But just because it's in this category does not make it evil. Doesn't make it wrong. And I think that's important because some people have have come to the conclusion that anything that fits in this category, you can't think about in any way, otherwise that's unspiritual, and we ignore that. And so people like that, they've come up with a phrase, you can be so heavenly minded, you're what? No earthly good. Now, I don't like that phrase, because the reality is, unless you're heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. But I understand why they would say that, because what the thinking has been is to ignore this world for only spiritual, quote-unquote, things. And so what some people have done is they've, had, they've interpreted this as being, I need to go and separate myself from this world. I need to go live up in a shack on the side of a mountain wearing burlap sacks, and then I can be spiritual. But does that fit the context of what Paul was just talking about in the previous verses? The goal, the requirement is that we would love. Well, how many people can you love if you're up on the side of a mountain by yourself forever? I guess if you're a really ornery person, you can love by subtraction. But other than that, you can't really love anybody if you're not around them. There was one guy who decided he was going to separate himself from the world by living on a 10-foot pole by himself. Again, how much use are you to people? You can warn them about the weather, I guess, but 10 feet isn't enough to really make a difference. So you can't really love people by separating yourself from them. That's not what it's talking about. Instead, it's talking about something far different. So there's the mindset. And and we'll explain what that, that difference is in a bit. So then the mindset is going to determine the walk. And the walk will be either in the Spirit or after the flesh. It will be one of those two things. And then the result will be a result or a product of the walk, which is either life and peace or death. Now, some other words we could use to describe this would be righteousness, joy and peace, contentment, freedom, heart and mind guarded, uh, love, patience, faithfulness. I mean, really, we could add the fruit of the Spirit here, which makes sense because it's His Spirit producing it as we're walking in the Spirit. And on the other side, we could look at prisoner, deceived, miserable, darkened, blinded, frustrated, anxious, anger, Envy, strife, jealousy, immorality, drunkenness. We could also add the bottom of this list, the deeds of the flesh, which again makes sense. Does that make sense there?
Now, here's the thing. Of these three, what is the most important? Of the mindset, walk, and result, what's the most important? The mindset. Because if you get the mindset right, then you get the walk. The walk is the product of the mindset. And then the result is the product of the walk. So if you get the mindset right, everything else falls into place. But most people, they're searching and striving to find out how to walk in the Spirit, produce the fruit of the Spirit. And God's really saying, get the mindset right. Think properly. So how do I do that? If I if it's not about ignoring this world, how do I think right? And I think it has something to do with this. If you think back to the story about how Joshua and Caleb, they went and spied out the land and they came back. They looked at the problems in the land. They're giants. They're big people. They got a big fortified city. This is the reality of it. They didn't ignore the world. They looked at the world. But what did they bring into that world perspective? God. But we should by all means go up and take the land because God said so. He's given us the land. So let's go. So they don't ignore the world. Instead, they look at it from a godly spiritual perspective. And because of that... They had this, a life, peace, righteousness, joy, contentment, and so forth. But the other ten people and the rest of Israel, they only looked at the problem from a strictly earthly or carnal perspective. How are we going to handle this? How are we going to overcome this? So think about a situation that you and I might face, face then. Suppose you have bills to pay. And, you know, you're, you're a little short on money and cash, and so you have an option. You could begin to scheme and manipulate and come up with ways for you to raise the money or to juggle some funds and some money in order to pay the bills and try to stay afloat to next month. Or you can say, Father, here's the situation. We're short on money. we got to pay the bills. What's your suggestion? Well, if I do that, now I'm approaching it from an eternal, heavenly mindset. Again, I'm not ignoring this world. I'm very much active in it, but I'm approaching it with a whole set of different resources. With the life of who? Of Jesus. Does that make sense? And if I do that, and if I get the mindset right, everything else falls into place. But if all I'm thinking about is me and my flesh and how am I going to cope, how am I going to make this work, can I expect to experience this, the peace? No. Galatians 6, 7 and 8. Do not be deceived. God's not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will reap. For the one who sows his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. If all I'm thinking about is me and how am I going to get out of this, how am I going to fix it, I'm going to reap the corruption. That's what we have here. The death, the despair, the anxiety, and so forth. But to the one who sows to the Spirit, though, but to the one who talks with Jesus, who walks with Jesus, from Him, from the Spirit, He will reap eternal life. So you reap what you sow. And as I talk with Father, I could experience the peace of Father. If I ignore that and figure out how am I going to fix this, then I'm in trouble. Is that clear? So, in Colossians 3, verses 1 to 4, it says that your mind can only be focused on one object at a time. This is some four points, basic points about the mind. Your mind can only be focused on one object at a time. Um, uh, people argue with me with this one, uh, namely women. Uh, no man has ever argued with me on this one. 
Uh, only women have. Um, well, we got a test for you then. Um, I mean, you may have already seen it, so that will spoil the test, but nonetheless. Um, so, the thing is, um, you know, women, they say, well, we can multitask. You simple men, uh, cavemen, can only think of one thing at a time, but us women, advanced, uh, uh, far superior man, 2.0, we can multitask. The reality is you can't multitask, you can just switch back and forth. You're only really thinking about one object at a time, you're just going back and forth between them. And so your mind can only focus on one object at a time. So if your mind is focused on the things of the Spirit, how am I going to make this work? How am I going to orchestrate this? What's going to happen? You're not thinking of the things of the Spirit. But if you're thinking about the things of the Spirit, what are you not thinking about? The things of the flesh. So your mind can only be focused on one object at a time. Two, the mind will normally default to what it's been set to in the past. So if all my life I've been walking after the flesh, I get saved, what will it default to after salvation? Walking after the flesh and thinking after the flesh. And it will continue to do so until I retrain and reprogram the way I think to begin to think about things in a spiritual perspective. And that will take some time. It doesn't happen overnight. It's now training to uh, reevaluate things, but realizing that God lives in me and He's very much involved in what's going on. But if I don't make that choice, then it will default back to the flesh. But over time, eventually, the default may actually become walking in the Spirit. The third one, you cannot suppress a thought. You need to replace it with a new one. It simply does not work to suppress thoughts. As hard as you may try, it will never, ever be possible. So, Sherry, this is really important. I I should have told you this earlier. In order to finish the course, you can't think about pink elephants. Okay? So don't, seriously, don't, don't think about pink elephants. No pink elephants, okay? In fact, Sarah, can you remind her from time to time throughout the rest of the course not to think about pink elephants, okay? Don't think about pink elephants. And Aaron, maybe you can do the same thing. And, you know, at any point in time, anyone else can remind Sherry not to think about pink elephants, okay, Sherry? Do not think about pink elephants. Look at me, Sherry. This is important. Don't think about pink elephants, okay? What are you thinking about right now? One simple, simple command. And, um, why does it not work? What were you thinking about? White birds? If you're thinking about white birds, what are you not thinking about? If you're thinking about blue elephants, what are you not thinking about? It doesn't work to suppress the thought. Instead, you need to replace the thought. So, it's not a matter of don't think about it, don't think about it. Instead, think about something else. So it's not don't think about the flesh, don't walk after the flesh. Instead, it's walk after the Spirit. That's why it's not don't think about not legalism, it's walk after the Spirit. Trust Him. And then finally, the feelings tend to follow what the mind is set on. Sort of. There's a little disclaimer there. Uh, for example, suppose you are driving in the country in a beautiful sunny day like today and it's really warm outside so you got the top down and uh, you're listening to your favorite music station and the wind is blowing through your hair. You're having a great time. And uh, on a scale of 0 to 10, 0 being calm, cool and collected, 10 being an anxious, nervous mess, where do you suppose your feeler is? 
Yeah, one, two, real low. You're having a great time. Then suddenly you notice in the rear view mirror red and blue flashing lights. You look down at your speedometer and realize you are 57 kilometers over the speed limit. Now you begin to think, "Uh oh, this is my third ticket this month, and I was told one more ticket, I'm going to lose my license and I'll lose my car because I'm going over 50 here." And、uh, if I lose my license in my car, then I can't get to work. And if I can't get to work, I can't get paid. If I can't get paid, I'm going to lose my house, my mortgage, and my wife will kill me, and she will leave me. And so all this is running through your mind. Where are your emotions now? Twelve. Yeah. <laughs> and how long did it take to get there? Because all yeah, all these thoughts. All these anxious thoughts came, and your feelings followed the anxious thoughts. But now the cop car—he pulls past you, and he takes off. He's got a more urgent call to get to. Juanita slapped somebody, apparently. So he's off to this call, and now you realize, okay, I'm not going to lose my license. I'm not going to lose the car. I'm not going to lose my job. I'm not going to lose the mortgage. I'm not going to lose my family. I'm okay. So where is your feeler now? Nine, <laughs> right? I mean, your heart's still pounding, and then you know a few days go by, and you're at a seven, and then a few more days go by, you're at a four, and a few more days go by, you're at a two, and you're speeding again, right? That's how it works. So their feeler tends to respond to negative thoughts or anxious thoughts very quickly, but when we have the proper thinking and the calmer thinking, it tends to come down very slowly. It's like gas prices goes up quick, comes down slow. So that's what happens. That's why I say it's a sort of. It's not an immediate reaction, but it does begin to change. So your feelings will follow what your mind is set on. Is that clear? So let's illustrate that a little bit here about how we can then sometimes let our feelings get us into a lot of trouble. So you can see we have four words: fact, belief, action, and feelings. And we're going to start with the world's way, and the world often starts with their feelings. And based on how I feel, that's going to drive this whole train here. So, for example, suppose I feel unloved. I feel like no one loves me. Well, how might I begin to act? I might act unloved. I'll be very sour. I might be very poor me, walk around with self pity, and then you know, how are people going to react to that? Not very positively, and so what I might believe is nobody loves me, and so I do that enough times, and how many friends will I have? And so it becomes a fact. And so what's happened is I let my feelings become a fact. I let my feelings dictate my actions and my beliefs, and it becomes a fact. And so in the world's way, we allow our feelings to become facts, which is a most dangerous way to live. However, God's way. Is going to be the opposite. It starts going to start with the fact. So the fact is, I am loved. I am the beloved child of God. That's who I am. That's a fact of history, and that is never ever going to change. So I have the information. I have the fact. And what do I need to do with it now? I need to believe the fact. If I don't believe in it, it's no good to me. Just like you may know the information of salvation, but if you don't believe in it, that information is absolutely useless. So we need to have faith. We need to trust in that. But James says, "Faith without action is dead." If you don't act on the belief, if you don't act on what you purport to believe, then it's useless. 
is worthless. If Mr. Yates knew he had all the oil in his land, and he believed he had all the oil in his land, but he never did anything with the oil in his land, it's absolutely useless to him. So we have the fact, belief, and action, and then eventually the feelings may follow. So the feelings are always meant to be the caboose of the train, never the engine. But in the world's way, we often have it the other way around. So, in God's way, our feelings can be used as an indicator as to whether we're thinking properly. Meaning, if I'm having anxious thoughts, that probably tells me I'm having anxious thinking. Now, here's the great mistake we make with feelings. How many people have been in a car where the check engine light or the oil light comes on? You've been there, and you know the solution, right? You know how to get rid of it. You just take a piece of tape over the light, and away you go. Keep driving. Is that what you do? No, it's kind of stupid to use the word last night, right? It's dumb. Why? Because the warning light was saying, warning, something's happened. Your oil light is on. If you don't do something, you will seize your engine up soon. And by pretending it's not there, by putting the tape over the light doesn't fix the problem, it just masks the problem. So instead you use it to act. Well, feelings are kind of like the indicator. When the feeling light comes on, be it anxious thoughts, be it despair, be it frustration, be it depression, whatever, when the feeling comes on, all it's saying is, something's happening, pay attention, warning. And what it does is it gives me an opportunity to check my thinking. Now, there's no shame in having the feeling. It's just a feeling. It's just the reaction. It's no more different than if you touch something hot, you feel something warm. It's telling your body that something is happening. It's a sensation. So when the feeling comes, I say, Okay, Father, I'm feeling anxious. Why? Well, I could probably look at my thoughts, and I'm thinking, How am I going to fix this situation? And that's why it's really anxious. Or I might be worried about something coming up and I'm thinking it's all on my shoulders to handle it. And so I realize then that my feelings are trying to warn me that my thoughts are probably not on God. They're probably off base. And so what I need to do is I need to replace that stinking thinking with proper thinking. And when I do that, then the feelings begin to change and the warning light goes out. So don't ignore the feelings. Feelings aren't bad, they're not evil, they're God-ordained, they are important, and they can help. Just don't let feelings dictate what's true. That's the mistake. I don't feel loved, therefore I'm not loved. No, I am loved, even though I don't feel it right now. So there's an instruction in setting the mind, be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So to renew your mind is sort of like how an alternator on the car renews the battery. The moment the car starts, that alternator is producing electricity to charge the battery. And how long is that alternator run for? As long as the car is running. That's the idea. We're to be continually renewing our mind. The mistake we often make is we renew our mind for the morning devotion. And that's it. So we have this incredible great time with God. Where we you know, open up the scriptures and we read through something and we say, Father, that was great. That was incredible. I loved what you said to me. I can't wait till tomorrow. And then we go and we put the Bible on the table and we go off to work. And I can almost imagine Jesus going and saying, Hey, whoa, 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 whoa. Today's Take Your Savior to Work Day. Can I come with you? I love to come. We could chat. 
We can continue to talk about what we read. We can talk about something else. We can talk about the problems you're having at work. But please, can I come? Can I come? I'm coming with you anyways. So let's talk. And so the morning devotion is great, but don't end it when you close the book. Because the conversation can continue all day long. And it's a moment by moment renewing your mind. Because He's with you. So talk to Him about anything and everything. And then more importantly, listen to Him. Listen to Him. Colossians 3, 1 and 2. Keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things of the earth. It doesn't mean ignore the problems of this world. It's come and approach it from God's perspective. And then finally, the promise. You, God, will keep him in perfect peace. The the Hebrew word here for perfect peace is shalom, shalom. He repeats it. And so they've translated it as perfect peace. But shalom means far more than peace. When someone would say shalom to another person, he was giving him a blessing that you would be made well. That you would be made whole. And so when you, God, will keep him in shalom, shalom, in perfect peace, in wholeness, in healthiness, not just of the mind, but the whole being whose mind is stayed, who's resting and trusting and leaning up against you because he trusts in you. So trust in the Lord forever for the Lord Jehovah is an everlasting, never ending, ongoing strength. Rely upon him. Talk to him. Yes. Um, in uh, the world of psychology, um, one of the litmus tests of whether or not you're kind of going, you know, have some major problems is whether or not you're hearing God's voice. Oh, okay. So, like, people that get into real big trouble, uh, you know, are often asked to hear God's voice. Yeah. So It's not the audible, you know, audible voice. Um, it's, it's the sensation that, that I sense, I get the idea that this is something God's wanting to say to me. A verse comes to my mind, uh, a, a characteristic of God. And, and so it's not the audible voice. It's not the writing on the wall. I've yet to have a donkey come and speak to me. I'm open to him, but it hasn't happened yet. Um, and, and if I do, then I'll make sure not to tell a psychologist. But, um, but it, it's not that sense. But I mean, the number one way is scripture verses come to mind. Hence the reason we are study scripture. We read scriptures because that's where we discover the heart and character of God. And then when he speaks to us, it's often through his scriptures. And that's how we have that assurance that it's him. So when it comes to that assurance that it's from him and stuff like that, I mean, like history, like, for example, England, they, they conquered the world on the basis of the fact that they believed that God ordained them to do so. Mm-hmm. That was anchored in their understanding of scripture misinterpreted, but. Yeah. Here's, here's where, um, cause again, you know, the angel of light, or the one appearing as the angel of light, Satan, uh, will be more than happy to quote scripture just as well. So there's really, there's two aspects, I think, when it comes to discerning what is God's will. What are, where is he leading us? If you turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 60 and verse 17, there are five lines in the verse. And the last two verses, Two lines of that verse, sorry, says, I will make peace your governor and righteousness your ruler. Now, the governor in the states, they have, you know, the one that leads the states, right? So he's the one in charge. In Canada, what's the equivalent of our, of their governor? 
premium. Really, they should have translated that way because it would have been far more, you know, um, literal or the the literary quality would be better because you have the matching words, right? Peace, your premier. Righteousness, your ruler. The R's and the P's. No, okay. Um, Getting late, I guess, on the day, right? So anyways, I will make peace your governor, righteousness your ruler, he says. So I think you have these two aspects to help to lead us and to guide us. One is, do I have a peace about it? So when I have a decision before me, I want to know, do I feel that this is what God's saying to do? And what happens is I'll begin to walk in that direction. And as long as I'm walking that direction, I'm going the right direction. My peace about that decision will grow. If I'm walking in the wrong direction because I got my signals crossed or something happened, then my peace will diminish. And that's Father's way of saying, hey, you mixed up. It's okay. Turn away. And I go the other direction. And then my peace begins to grow. The problem is you can talk yourself into a lot of things. So there's a lot of people who have talked themselves into leaving their marriage. This is for you, Ian. So there's a lot of people who have talked themselves into leaving their marriage and they get a sense of false peace when they come up with that idea. So how do we know what's a false peace and what's the real peace? Well, that's the other part of it. I will make righteousness your ruler. So the next part of it is, is the decision I'm walking towards, is it righteous or not? So in the case of leaving your wife in, it's not righteous. So regardless of the peace, you don't do it. If you get the idea on the way home, I'm going to knock off the liquor store and that will fix my money problems. Not righteous, not from God. You can immediately dismiss that. But again, there's a lot of decisions that aren't really righteous or unrighteous. They're kind of amoral. Do I get the blue car or the red car? Do I go to Florida or do I go to the Bahamas for a vacation? And that's where God gives us a sense of peace if there's something in particular He wants us to go to or do. So together, that righteousness and the peace. So in England's case, go conquer the world. Well, God really wasn't into nation building at that time. He was more into people building and hearts and so forth. So they lacked that righteous component. And then it was all about them and their own self. Did you have a question, Juanita? Not anymore. It's more, you know, before you got to the second part, mm-hmm. because Christ in the garden was, that was not peace to me. In the garden of Gethsemane. Yes. Yeah, but, but then, he made the choice. To, yeah. But the peace grew. Yes. Right? Each, I mean, as soon as he, as, as soon as he surrendered, it's interesting, as soon as he surrendered, what happened? The angels came and began ministering to him. But it wasn't until he surrendered that the angels came and began ministering to him. So the moment he took the step in the right direction, then the peace came and everything came. What can happen is we get into the, the paralysis of analysis. Do I go left? Do I go right? Do I go left? Do I go right? And I do nothing. And God is far more interested in you taking a step of faith. Even if you're wrong, All he's like, will you trust me? Okay, I'm going in this direction. Here we go. And if I'm right, the peace will grow. If I'm wrong, he'll let me know. And it's not a condemnation. You wicked child, you should have heard me. It's no, you're going the wrong way. Okay, then I switch course and then the peace will grow. Okay, so what's a practical way of thinking and praying? In Psalm 4, verse 6, Paul says, be anxious for nothing. So don't be anxious. Don't be anxious. Sherry, do not be anxious. Don't be anxious. Don't be anxious. Is that going to work? No. Instead, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. 
So no matter what situation I'm in, I can be talking to Father, recognizing that I have what I need. Because that's really what Thanksgiving is, right? I am thanking God for what I already have. So Thanksgiving is really a statement of possession. And so thank you, Father, for the fact that whatever situation I'm up against, I have your life, I have your resources. So I'm short on money to pay the bills. So Lord, I thank you that I have your peace. Thank you for your patience that I wait for my next paycheck to come in. Thank you for the wisdom so I know how to go and talk to these people that I owe money to. And thank you for the sense that I am still loved and righteous even though I can't pay my bills right now. So we can thank Him for what we already have. But if I'm asking God for it, what am I declaring, I believe? That I don't have it. And I may not feel it, but that doesn't mean I don't have it. So with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So the secret is, all day long, you can be mentally thanking God for all that you have in Christ Jesus to meet your needs that you're faced with. Put your focus on what you have in Christ to meet your need and thank Him for what you have. So, verse 6, Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Make, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. We could read it this way, that the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall rise up like a mounted garrison to guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You know what a mounted garrison is? It's about a hundred of these guys. And there's a great picture of this story in 2 Kings 6. It's a story of where Elisha is um, uh, serving as a, as a spy. Well, it's God's a spy because the king of Aram is trying to plot to destroy Israel. And so God tells Elisha, who tells the king of Israel, and they, they, they know and they can plan against all these ambushes that Aram's coming up with. Well, this is frustrating the king of Aram to no end, but he can't get rid of the spy, God, so he decides to go after the next best person, which is Elisha. So he sends his army, and they hunt down and find Elisha in this little town, with Elisha and his servant, and they surround the town waiting for Elisha to get up. Well, Elisha's servant wakes up, and you can picture this story. He wakes up, walks out with a morning coffee, kind of rubbing his eyes, and he looks up, and who does he see? He's surrounded by this army waiting to kill who? And him. <laughs> At this point, his master part doesn't really matter. <laughs> it's him that they're here to kill. Uh, you know, he's just, that's, he's got his priorities straight, right? So he freaks out. He panics. He runs back into the tent, shakes Elisha to, to wake up and drags him outside. And so Elisha's really tired, really rubbing his eyes. And he's looking around. He goes, look, look, look. Do you see? Do you see? They're here to kill you. Never mind that. They're here to kill me. What are we going to do? He's freaking out. He's having a panic attack. And Elisha looks, okay, not worried at all. And the servant's like, okay, do you not see this? I mean, they're here to kill you. Again, they're here to kill me. Yeah, here's the glasses. Do you not see something? And then Elisha prays a very simple and a very cool prayer. He says, Father, open up the eyes of my servant that he might see what I see. Immediately, the servant's eyes open up. Does the army of Aram disappear? No. What does he see? Another army, an army of heavenly hosts, of angels, waiting at Elisha's command to come and utterly wipe off the face of the earth, the army of Aram. Suddenly, how's Elisha's servant feeling? Better. 
Did he ignore the problem? No, he saw it from a whole new perspective. And so the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, doesn't make sense, will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. That's what happened with Elisha's servant. But here's the cool part. Remember Elisha's mindset on God and what God's up to? If it were me, I would be tempted to do this. Tempted. I'm not saying I'd do it. I'd be tempted to do it. Which is to say, come and get me. I'm right here. And I'll let them come and get close. That way they feel like they're doing something. Feel like they're accomplishing something that day. And then just at the last moment, I would sick the angels on them and utterly destroy them. Just to play with them a little bit. I'd be tempted to do that. But that's not what Elisha does. Elisha prays another prayer. He says, God, blind the eyes of the army of Aram so my servant and I can sneak out. See, what's so incredible is he could have utterly destroyed these people, but instead he showed them mercy. He loved them. Why? His mind was set on God and the things of God. And so he had peace and he was able to love. Remember we saw earlier in Romans 8, the mind set on the Spirit, you'll walk in the Spirit, and you'll experience the life of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit. So setting your mind on Jesus. Talk with Jesus. Walk with Jesus. That's really what it's about. And so whatever, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if there's anything that is excellent or praiseworthy, think or dwell about such things. Now, in these last 12 hours here at this conference, have you heard anything that fits this category? Have you heard anything that's wonderful, anything that's praiseworthy, anything lovely, anything pure? What are the things that you've heard that fit this list? That Christ lives in us. What else? That we're holy. That we're righteous. That the old me has been crucified and he or she no longer lives. The sinner is gone. I'm now a new creation. I'm no longer under law and no longer under that bondage. I'm under grace. I'm free. These are all wonderful things, so think about them. When you leave here today, the worst thing you can do is just go and put the book in the, the conference book on the shelf and never think about this again. If that's what you do, then you have just wasted the last three days. I'm serious. It's just, it's just wasted time because all it was was just information and intellect. What you need to do now is take this information, the information from the Word of God, and let it begin to soak in and change the way you approach life. Let it change you and the way you think. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind now. And let this stuff sink in and talk to Father about it. Remember what you've learned here. And talk to Him about it often. And So whatever you learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. Begin to live out of this. Don't forget about this stuff. Live out of this stuff. And the peace of God will be with you. Okay, page 46. Turn to page 46. The final word. Some suggestions. One suggestion to help you in this uh, putting into the practice is memorize Galatians 2.20. Memorize this verse. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live today, now, in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. 
Memorize this verse. Talk to Father about this. Ask Him about it. This verse is like a diamond. You turn it a little bit, you'll see new insights to it. It's, a, it's one of those deep, deep verses of the New Testament. So begin to let this verse meditate on your mind. Another, consider praying that selfish prayer or one like it that we looked at last night on page 30. That prayer is an invitation to let God make the reality of your death an everyday walk and experience in your life. And so um, ask Him to make that death, burial, and resurrection reality in your life. Memorize, Galatians, or memorize 2 Corinthians 5.21. We looked at that verse today that God made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And then you can pray, uh, pray a prayer of faith similar to the one we looked at on page 35 and allow righteousness to begin to control you. And then begin this practice of setting your mind on things above many times throughout the day. Talk to Father. Really, that's what it's about. Talk to Father. Walk with Father. Live like He's in you. You know why? Because He's in you. He's there. And then finally, a bit of a warning for you. Don't run out and try and share these truths with all your friends right away. Don't grab your friend or your pastor and say, we're righteous, we're righteous, and so forth, and just, you know, jump all over them sort of thing, because it doesn't work very well. Uh, Remember when you were first saved and you were all excited and you try to share Jesus with your friends? How do they respond? Wet blanket sort of thing, right? This will be worse. So don't force this on people. What you can do is you can share what Father's done in your heart, but don't force this on people. That's that's a great mistake. Um, turn to page 12 of your syllabus. We have one more thing to do, and then we'll be done. And you'll see there the uh, the tree that we made, going back to our first night. And what I want you to see is that tree on your right, God has chopped down, and now He's planted a new tree, the one that I just handed out to you, one that's now based on who God says we are in His Word. So it's based on His Word, His truth, and the result are the facts about me is that we're now loved, we're children of God, we're holy, we're complete, we're sanctified, we're righteous, we're seated with Him in heavenly places. He lives in us, and now the fruit as we live out of that truth will be the fruit of the Spirit, the love, the joy, the peace, and so forth. That's who you are now. This is what God has accomplished. It's not what you need to become. It's who you are. Now live out of that. That's the reality of things. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this time we've had together, a time to, although look at some fairly um, lengthy and heavy material, I pray that we receive and realize again the simplicity that is the the Christian message, the Gospel, because it's all about You what You have done, and how You now live in us. So Father, I pray as we leave here that we would continue to meditate on what we've heard and that more importantly, they will meditate on what they've heard through me. And so Father, we're looking forward to how to apply this, how to allow this truth to change the way we think and how we view ourselves, view You, and view other people. Thank You, Father, and we bless Your name. Amen. This message was recorded by Crossways to Life. It is the desire of Crossways to Life to know Jesus deeper and disciple Christians to experience life in Him through the message of the cross. For more information about our ministry, upcoming courses and events, or how to contact us, please visit our website at www. 
www.crosswaystolife.org.